an epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Welcome to the first episode of the ID10T podcast. That has a nice ring to it. Uh, technically, episode 930. More about the numbering system in a minute. Uh, first, I'd like to thank 1 800 Flowers for sponsoring this episode of the ID10T podcast. It's very thrilling to live dangerously, but it's very dangerous to wait until the last minute to buy a Valentine's Day gift. You know what? When I was a kid, I tended to like to wait until the last night when a report was due, like right before, because I really craved the pressure. But this this kind of pressure is not, it's so avoidable. Make this happen. Do it right. Win Valentine's Day with 1-800-Flowers.com. Uh, 1-800-Flowers will have your back in a tight situation. They will be there for you. So right now you can get 18 Enchanted Roses for only $29.99, uh, which is an amazing offer at 1-800-Flowers. So when it comes to Valentine's, don't settle for anything less than your rose authority, 1-800-Flowers.com, to order 18 Enchanted Roses for only $29.99. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click the radio icon, enter the code ID10T, that is ID10T, I'm sure you probably figured that out by now, you're looking at it on your phone. Valentine's Day is almost here, order today, 1-800-Flowers.com, use the promo code ID10T. It is the first ID10T podcast I did 929 Nerdist podcasts. I don't want to start the numbers over. It'll fuck up the whole library. It's going to be annoying for people to see that in their feed. It's And it is basically the same podcast, just with a different skin. So um, it's just going to be cleaner and easier if I just say this is the first ID10T podcast, and you'll know that that is episode 930. And we'll just go from there, 930, 931, all the way up. Um, cause I, you know what? I really want to get to a thousand podcasts. I mean, I'm going to do more than that, but I just, I don't want to start over at one. Uh, it took a lot to get here. We just had our eight year anniversary for crap's sake. And now I want to talk about the, uh, couple changes. This is going to be a little longer than normal, this intro. So I apologize, but I want to thank Janet Varney who came back and slightly tweaked the intro and outro for us. She did the now entering nerdist.com. And uh, so that'll be fun. Then I, so I want to thank her for that. And you should listen to the JV club podcast and watch everything she's in. Cause she's one of the funniest people I know. Also um, theme song, Anamanaguchi, uh, Jetpack Blues, Sunset Hughes, synonymous with the Nerdist podcast. They let us use that song for eight years. I want to thank them. It is uh, from the album Dawn Metropolis. It is available. You can buy it. You should buy it. Um, But I felt like it was time to have a new theme song. Uh, I just thought 
you know, like with a slight re slight retooling and rebranding that that made sense. So, uh, I asked my friend Jonah Ray of Jonah radio and sometimes Nerdist podcast. Hey Jonah, you seem to know music. You have a, you have a haircut that suggests, you know, cool bands. And he said, he said, Hey, check out my friends who are in the band fart barf, which is the best name for a band. I know you're saying that I'm just telling you that I agree. So, um, they have a song that I, I listened to their album and they have a song on their album, Dirty Power from 2014, uh, which is called Hero of Time. And thematically, I thought that was perfect. It's almost kind of Hoovian. And also it's like time where we're time heroes because we've lasted this long. And so, uh, I picked it and I think it'll, it'll give you some night. It'll give you a nice flave of Jetpack Blues, uh, Sunset Hughes, but, uh, it's kind of a new vibe and I really love it. So I'm excited about that. So thanks to fart barf for allowing me to, uh, use their song hero of time as the ID 10 T podcast theme, a going forward. Also, I started the ID 10 T Twitter handle and the ID 10 T Instagram handle because social media is a thing. Y'all it's important because <laughs> <laughs> our our personal websites are dead. Social media killed them. So social media is where we reach you, the audience. Before we get to the corkboard, which yes, there is still a corkboard, but before we get to that, I just want to say thank you. I really, really, really need to say thank you because when I announced the podcast was changing names last week, uh, probably seemed very sudden to you. Was not very sudden to me. Uh, I was freaking the fuck out about it and. I think pretty unanimously people on social media that I saw said to me like, yeah, it's a name change. Exactly what Matt said. So I did what I do best, which is to obsess on a, on a detail and freak out about it and catastrophize it. But you know, it's partially because I care about this show and I care about you. We are in a relationship of sorts and it is important to me that you feel supported because you support the podcast. So we are in an ecosystem of support. At least, you know, that's what I, my hope. And so, uh, you know, I want to thank you for mitigating <laughs> all of the, the, the anxiety and the trauma that I was feeling. And, you know, whatever. I know it's a podcast. It's not the most important thing in the world. But it is a thing that we all are involved in. And I made a deal with you guys eight years ago when we started this. Like, I'll be here for you every week as long as it's fun. And this is making it fun. The, like, refreshing the podcast is making it fun. Um, the only other s slightly small change is that uh, we've added a sponsor to the opening intro. Um, so there'll be a short one at the top and then two at the end of the intro. That is not to assault you with ads or make you feel like I'm taking advantage of your time. But it is, um, you know, it's a thing. It is a thing to do as I've broken away and become independent with the podcast. It is a thing that I need to do. So it's not to take advantage of your time or try to be greedy, but it's going to help uh, keep the podcast free and be able to uh, bring the people over that I brought over with me and make sure they are fairly compensated for their time and also help build up all the ID10T stuff, of which there is a lot of fun stuff coming down the pipeline that I'm excited to announce in the coming months. So again, thank you, uh, and I hope you understand. And now let's talk about the ID10T community corkboard. Just keeping it rolling. So this is from Roll High Girl, and it's, she says... 
Hi, everyone. A little while ago, I decided to unite my love of design, people, and science and founded an online magazine, Composite, to reshape how society sees scientists and engineers. Well done. I could go on about why people don't trust scientists or why people don't want to be scientists, but the solution to both problems is to show the world that the scientific community is full of creative and diverse people. I support this. Me, Chris Hardwick, I support this. Uh, Composite hopes to do just that by celebrating diversity, talents, and unique paths with successful scientists and engineers. We publish original creative content for people pursuing science and engineering educations uh, and careers and are always looking for new submissions and people to feature. True Passion Project. Uh, I do most of the photography, interviewing, editing, design, and advertising myself for no monetary gain in the hopes that people can enjoy and participate. Check it out and let me know what you think. Compositezine.com. And uh, I will be performing this weekend at uh, Stand Up Live in Phoenix. I'm going to bring Mike Furman and April Richardson with me. Then the following weekends, I'll be in Brea, California and Oxnard, California. Google that shit for tickets and info. This episode, Tim Robbins. Man, I cannot tell you how excited I was that Tim Robbins agreed to do the podcast. I mean, Tim Robbins is, he's just one of those guys. You know, I was just exactly the right age when he started doing movies. He started out doing a lot of the teen comedies that I watched when I was a teen, and then he evolved into a fucking incredible performer, and he does a lot of amazing work with Actors Gang. First of all, I'm going to tell you about his new show, Here and Now, which is premiering February 11th on HBO and HBO Now and HBO Go. Um, it's Alan Ball, and uh, it is the show is fantastic. I've, I've watched the first two episodes and you should watch it. It Holly Hunter is in it. It's just a fucking great show. And I also want to support the Actors Gang, which is a theater group that he founded. Oh my God, thirty year over thirty years ago. Um, they're doing a show called The New Colossus at the Actors Gang Theater in Culver City. Previews begin February eighth. Opening night is February seventeenth. And every Thursday at the Actors Gang is pay what you can. If you only have ten cents, pay ten cents. If you're like, you know what, I got 100 bucks, I don't know what to do with, pay 100 bucks, whatever you can. It's for the community. Just show up before 7.30 p.m. on those nights. Tickets are available at theactorsgang.com. This episode also brought to you by LinkedIn. Say, have you tried to hire someone lately? It is hard. I know, I have to hire people. (laughs) But it doesn't have to be hard, thanks to LinkedIn. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's a better way to find great talent. So how often do you check job boards? I'm going to guess you're saying not very often. For most people, it is occasional at best. But there's a place where people go daily to grow professionally and explore job opportunities. 70% of the United States workforce is there. It's LinkedIn. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experience, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. 22 million professionals. View and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week in every industry, just like yours, just like mine. If you're not using LinkedIn for your hiring needs, you're missing out. Go to linkedin.com slash ID10T. Get a $50 credit toward your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash ID10T for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, Also another sponsor, uh, Beachbody On Demand is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs. Now, you're probably saying, Chris Hardwick, why are you talking to me about Beachbody? Why would you be talking to me about that? Because uh, I have used the app for quite a while now. And so when I found out they wanted to sponsor the the podcast, I was like, I use, I use that. I already use that. Uh, I use them. They're a 
fantastic just like 10 minute workouts if you need to bang through a 10 minute workout you can bang through a 10 minute workout uh on the app on an ipad on your phone wherever uh, on apple tv or or wherever you are wherever you are if you're in a hotel room you can bang out a workout it is important you need to stay physically healthy if you want to be able to accomplish a lot of things your body needs to be able to handle the stress it is a total package to help you become your total package uh, Beachbody On Demand is convenient. It's amazing. You need to give this service a try. There are over 600 workouts, and there's nutritional information on there. Plus, your annual subscription is cheaper than a gym membership. So right now, ID10T listeners can get a free trial membership when you text ID10T, ID10T, ID to 303030. You're going to get full access to this entire platform for free. All the workouts and nutrition information for free. Just text ID10T. To thirty thirty thirty. Thanks to Beachbody for uh, being a thing I use, and also for sponsoring this episode of the ID Ten T podcast, which is episode nine hundred and thirty. You see what I did there, Katie? Please roll the first ID Ten T thing. Initiating ID Ten T protocol. You want some water? Here's some water. Nice. Is that Billy D. Williams? Yes, it is. Also known as Lando Calrissian. <laughs> He's also the spokesperson for Colt 45. <laughs> oh boy! This I appreciate. I appreciated the genuine nature of that. Oh, here we yeah. go. All right. <laughs> here we go. Got to put those filters on. Yeah, I'm just going to be an idiot. <laughs> no, 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 no. But we're not going to. It's like don't. Uh, well, it, it's not. Uh, we're not going to quiz you on weird. <laughs> we're not doing the quiz. We're not doing. A... Uh, you just try me. I might have some. Trivia. <laughs> I might have some trivia in there. <laughs> All right. I'm going to turn some air on too, not that so it's we don't. Trivial. So it, that's that's right. All right, I'm going to turn some air on so that we don't all fry in here. Let's see if our... Give it, is that good for sound? Oh, I've never heard it. All right. How about Living that? room, media, cool. kitchen. What? I'm, going to tell, I'm just going to tell my, uh, ask my wife to make it cooler because she's put the app in. Uh, you, should, you should get a voice command. Make it condition. cooler in the dining room. Please. 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 This is your wife. Yes. <laughs> 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 all right great so welcome thank it's you. nice to see you thank you how are you doing doing okay are you good i'm, I'm good are we started we, it's already started yay yay i watched the first two episodes of here and now last night mm-hmm. and the show I, I, it, the show is fucking great and the only thing that i want to ask that you probably can't answer is and i think this isn't a spoiler because when people watch the show they'll immediately understand what i'm saying how is the show more mystical or metaphorical like that sometimes i can't tell with alan ball stuff it's like 
I love that that's the question you're asking after watching two. That's that's a good sign. It is a good... Is it mystical or metaphorical? Is it mystical or metaphorical? Because I'm trying to figure out one character is going through a thing that seems to start bleeding over into the world. I think I'm under a contract not to talk about anything mystical or metaphorical. Damn it. (laughs) But beyond that, there seem to be pretty grand undertones of like empathy and outrage. Yes. Which I love because I am fascinated by... The commercialized outrage machine that we seem to be living in right Interesting. now. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Do you is. feel that? Are I you... do feel that. I feel like we are living in a state of anger, a constant state of anger and frustration. And I think it's very unhealthy. And do you partake in social media a whole lot or no? Well, I am really bad at social media. I, I, I don't, I, I, <laughs> I, I still don't know quite how to do it. Um, I dabble occasionally, but um, here's the thing. I wish that the collective energy that has been put into uh, uh, um, negativity and um, opposition, uh, if you can imagine all of that being added up, the amount of time people spend on their various devices spewing venom and vitriol, if that were put into positive energy and mm-hmm. actually doing something in your local neighborhood, even on your street yep. to make things better. If we could put that energy into more productive uh, means, uh, I think we'd all be a lot better off. And it's also, I think a better way to survive in a situation like this. When you wake up in the morning and you start seeing vitriol on your phone, it's going to define your day. Of same course. thing. Same thing is, is if you do that right before you go to sleep, it's going to define your dreams. You, it's, 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 it's a constant, like, almost like watching a car crash. What did he say today? What, 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 what? A horrible thing did our leader do today? And and I think we can all just pretty much assume now we have been given a year of it. I think we can pretty much make our own conclusions about how we're going to vote next time and how, and how we feel about this. And right. so why do we have to live in a constant state of this opposition? I, I would suggest people turn their energy into more productive and positive things, just that you can do in your local neighborhood. There's an old lady that needs some help, or if there's a kid that needs some tutoring. or and There's so many different ways that we can use our creativity and our, our, um, our intelligence to make things better. Uh, and yes, of course, opposition is important. It's important to spread information, but to live in a constant state of it, I think, is just downright unhealthy. Yeah, I mean, I I completely empathize with your character in the show, who's going through like a weird several year long depression, where it's just he's it's just. It's what I get offered these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like when we were young, my generation, and we all had to do a uh, Vietnam film. Of course, of and course. And a uh, Get Laid movie, like Porky's. Right? Oh, like Porky's, yeah. So Jacob's Ladder was the Vietnam movie. Yeah, that's right. What was your Get Laid movie? Fraternity should... Vacation. Fraternity yeah. Vacation. Okay. So it was like a rite of passage. You know, if you weren't allowed to be an actor in Hollywood unless you did one of those, you know, both of those things. So, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> so uh, yeah. So anyway, so that now it's uh, it's uh, my it's it's evolved into a midlife crisis movie. Of course, or, 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 or you know, playing a guy who's falling apart, which you, is a fun part to play. It is a fun yeah. part to play because there's he's complex and he's layered. I don't know how layered the uh, the guy going to get laid in uh, not too Tijuana layered. is. Not he's, too not, layered. he's not that layered. It was Palm Springs, but yeah, it, it was Palm Springs. It was Palm Springs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know. it was Tijuana. Okay, gotcha. Good, yeah. good. Yeah. Well, well played. But that was all around the. When did you found Actors Gang? Eighty one. Yeah, we founded eighty one at UCLA, and and then uh, professionally since eighty two. Okay, so because I was I was looking at you're one of those guys that I really had to like look up. Okay, I need to go far back on the IMDb page because Tim Robbins is a guy like, oh, that's right, he was in that. Oh my god, that too. And it's interesting to see how you know in the 80s it started like a lot of actors it's like guest stars you know guest stars on cop shows guest a love boat appearance oh yeah what did you do on the love I boat was, i played george kennedy as a young man in nazi germany <laughs> <laughs> on the love boat come on now <laughs> it's a classic it was a classic how is captain Suming involved in that in any way the flashbacks dude oh flashbacks my god. oh my god how wouldn't that a spin-off into its own show yeah, yeah, I was, so, it was. I had to dye my hair blonde for it. It was a disaster. For, it was a disaster. Here it is. I just thought you're going to be some young guy. He comes on. He finds love in front of Isaac with a woman at the. And there, Isaac serving drinks. You get to make a snappy thing, and then you leave. But no. Yeah. No. You were maybe the one person in the history of the love boat that had to do a Nazi Germany yeah, uh, storyline. Yeah, yeah. So what <laughs> was the love boat had lots of Nazi episodes, and it was it, it, <laughs> more yeah. than you think. Lots of storming. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact. Yeah. <laughs> they finally go and they was a Nazi. They, yeah. they didn't know until yeah. you know at the time. He just seemed so nice. <laughs> like, said no idea what he was. He was actually sending messages to the yeah, uh, yeah. to the Axis forces uh, yeah. underneath everyone's noses. But I, I I'm kind of in a, in sort of a pre social media era where, you know, everyone's their own promoter, everyone's their own marketer, you know, in 1981-82. Apparently people buying hundreds of thousands of uh, followers. Too. Yes, that yeah. literally means nothing, you yeah. know, it's just yeah. like, you're, buy- you're what are you buying? You're yeah. buying phantom, you're just buying a phantom digit. I'm buying a way to feel better about myself. Yeah, I guess that's ultimately <laughs> what it is. You know the truth. Do you know so how many a- people follow me? <laughs> <laughs> 300 million it's, it's incredible it's a lot well there's a joke there's a joke about that in your show where your one of your adopted sons is selling his book and the or the, is meeting with a book publisher and the book publisher mentions about and your twitter and instagram followers are really great yeah, and yeah. i laugh because like that's those are the things that people say in Dude, people yeah. are being hired to be in movies based on their followers not on their talent it's a no. it's it's a downward slope it I, is. I, I was once in the, when I was working at uh, in the E building. I was walking by some people having a meeting, and like one, I heard a voice say, "I don't care if this guy's better. The other one has more followers on Twitter." Yeah, well, it's because it's because of marketing. Yeah. From, you know, it's like the marketing departments are running things because they need to be able to sell stuff. So they just it's just data. Like, and this not... is just for like a guest starring role. Too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we we would just need to pass an audition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had to learn you some lines. Door. You go in. You, you know you. You can hear oh every, you can hear the person in front of you auditioning. It's yeah. miserable, but you still got to go in and do it. It's on the resume. Just like it's like headshots are just going to be just the number of followers you have. It's not even going to be a picture of you anymore. No, it'll be under special skills: Australian accent, horseback riding, a million followers. A million followers. Uh, hello, but you know, you at a time where it wasn't really common for people to kind of be industrious and enterprising. 
you form this theater group. Mm-hmm. And was your was your mission to was your mission to work in television and film and all, or was it to just kind of like like really support theater and take theater like into the world touring into communities? Because uh, I know you guys did a lot of work, like taking Shakespeare to places and making places making shows available inexpensively mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. Thursdays. So. Yes. Uh, it all started with theater. Uh, when I was a, a uh, young man, a young boy, 12 years old, I started uh, acting in theater. And I studied theater in college, and I always thought I was going to be a director of theater. Um, that was my ambition. Uh, when I was at UCLA, I got into this thing called the O'Brien Awards, and uh, I've won the, this uh, contest that they had, but the contest would take place in the auditorium in front of uh, uh, a whole bunch of talent agents. So I got an agent in, in UCLA. Now, at the same time, I was taking the uh, first, our first production, Ubu the King, out into Hollywood. Okay. And so I started to audition, but I really funded the first show on my delivery uh pizza delivery tips oh wow and so um and i was working at jacopo's in beverly hills oh my god i remember jacopo's yeah they were it was excellent tips i mean oh that's (laughs) if you're gonna deliver pizza folks this is a little wisdom if you're gonna deliver pizza go to a nice neighborhood yeah (laughs) (laughs) so you can fund your theater program so um so uh it took me about a year to actually get a part I, i just thought it was all just like you know, I, I had an attitude. I was a punk rocker. I didn't want to sell out. I didn't want like, what, what am I doing here? You know, what, what is this bull shit, you know, that I'm auditioning for? And then I got something and, and, uh, you know, fittingly enough as a, you know, a terrorist, you know, I was like walking in with the attitude that they, I think the casting people got it right. I was like, you know, this punk rocker, I didn't give a shit. Right. But I lucked out and I got onto the first St. Elsewhere's. So the pilot and the first three shows of St. Elsewhere. And so um, it was a quality piece. Bruce Paltrow's uh, the producer of it. And that was the, my, the, when I first got that check, I thought, oh, my God, I can, I can really fund a lot of theater with this, you know, uh-huh. better than pizza, way better than pizza. <laughs> so I started uh, cleaning up my act as far as my attitude goes and started... Um, uh, auditioning more and getting more parts, and and that led to uh, for the first five, six years, seven years of the company, I was funding it from my salaries. Oh my wow. god, that's incredible! Because yeah. the 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 people that came out of Actors Gang or that you know or have brushed by it at the time, I mean, it's an insane group of. I mean, Tenacious D came out of Actors Gang, and Favreau, and and there's so many amazing people, and they all kind of have their own. That's why I wonder if do you attract a certain type of person or do they learn cuz all these like types of people yeah all yeah. these types of people kind of go off and sort of make their own stuff and have and kind of plant their own flag and that seems to be an interesting common thread for a lot of the names that have gone through there yeah there's a it, it's the, at the core of the work that we do is a, a acknowledgement of the audience that that, that they are it, theater is different than film. In theater, it's an event. It's it's the last place on earth right now that you can actually ask people to turn their cell phones off, and they will. <laughs> right. So you can have a good stretch of time to create a a, a new reality or a, pose a question or create a, a fiction of some kind to tell, to tell a story. In, in a dark place for two hours. Uh, and part of our uh, approach was uh, that we didn't want to do um, American realism. 
we didn't we wanted to look at theater as as what the event of theater has been historically from the time it was invented back in Greek times. It was always about a, a, a dialogue with the audience. It was always about asking questions that were relevant to the audience, uh, taking people on a journey that might illuminate something in their own existence or in their own faith or in their own life. And so we felt we always felt um, that that's what theater is. In fact, we were proud, and we are proud of the fact that over our 36-year history, there's only been one play that we've done that has had a couch. <laughs> what was the play? <laughs> it was uh, Happy Birthday, Wanda June by Kurt Vonnegut. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, uh, I, and I was, I was reluctant about that. I didn't want, I didn't want that damn couch. <laughs> <laughs> it soils the perfection that you've already... We can't have these outside elements yeah. in here. <laughs> so when we develop pieces or write uh, from within, we're always with the idea that it's a wide canvas, that with the, our style of theater, we can travel from a farm in the Midwest to space. It doesn't matter. We don't do it with sets. We do it with imagination. Mm -hmm. We do it with sound, and we do it with acting. And so the people that are attracted to it are inventors in their own way. And so like the fact that Jack Black came out of this and Kyle Gass came out of... Uh, um, was the, the, the fertile ground that they formed Tenacious D in was this environment where if you bring the goods, if you bring the states of emotion and you bring the urgency with it, you can create anything. You can you can tell any story. Wow. I mean, it, were they doing... Did they do Tenacious D at Actors Gang? Yeah, I remember them I, I remember them singing a song outside of our space on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. Uh, before they were Tenacious D, I remember them writing a song about OJ. <laughs> 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 and it was... It was yeah, and uh, but Jack was uh, Jack. I cast in uh, a play when he was twelve years old, and then he started hanging around. We had, we had like you know we wanted to you know smoke pot, so we would tell him to go away. But you know, but <laughs> but he started hanging out, and then uh, became a, a really amazing uh, actor uh, when he was late teens. He was with us in early twenties, and then I cast him in Bob Roberts, which yeah. was his yeah. first film. Yeah, that's incredible too, because you have this. Um this garden, basically, of really amazing talent. Well, you know what it is also? It's a way, and the, I think the predominant thing for me, uh, the reason why I've always returned to it uh, after a film project or um, have uh, done the work I've done there, is because it keeps me sane mm -hmm. here. Uh, this can be a very destructive town, Hollywood. Sure. It can, it can uh, particularly if you're successful. It, I've seen so many people fall. Uh, and why... Why, why does that happen? I think it has to do with the idea that I, I think we view success sometimes, uh, like when you nail a, you know, a, a big movie role or a series, that you feel that that is the achievement, that, that you've gotten there, right? But you don't go back to school. You don't go back to the laboratory. Right. And you, and you, and you live in this existence of, I'm famous for, mm -hmm. rather than, what can I do that I have never done before? And we don't have a lot of environments for that, uh, for people that act in TV and movies. Well, it's scary, isn't it, though? Because you, <clears throat> if, you put, if you have this idea in your head that, well, someday I want to achieve something bigger than whatever it is I'm doing now, <clears throat> and then you achieve that thing and you have it, 
it gets people want to protect it, right? It gets really scary. I'm like, right. I have this thing. I don't want to lose it now. I don't want to fuck it up. And then they start getting crazy. and Right. And if I do a play, <clears throat> then someone might find out that I can't really act. Right. <laughs> what if they can't edit around this? <laughs> but, but it is scary, you know, <clears throat> for actors. You know, it, it is... Uh, you know, listen, I remember going to a Hollywood party and realizing no one was getting drunk. I was like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> and I realized, oh, shit, if you go too far, it's career ender. You know, it's, oh, like, yeah. you know, it's like you don't want to be embarrassingly drunk in front of a, a captain of industry. Well, wasn't that like the entire subtext of the player, though? Was just this sort of like weird, <laughs> unspoken... Well, there's Larry Levy, uh, played by Peter Gallagher. Yes. He says, uh, I say, oh, Larry, I didn't know you were an alcoholic because he's headed to an AA maybe. Yeah. Says, I'm not an alcoholic. That's where all the deals are being made. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But there's that real commentary about this, like this toxic system that everyone just accepts. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, this is, this is what it is. Well, we're uh, thankfully we're getting rid of some of that toxicity. now. Yeah. 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 um, But I, I don't know that we're getting rid of it. Really. It will exist. It will continue to exist, but at least it's out in the open. At least it's empowering women to say no more and to, Stand, uh, stand up uh, uh, um, more bold to that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a sleazy place. I, honestly, it's, it's, it, um, I don't go out a lot in Hollywood. Right. I don't go to these parties. Yeah. I, I get invited to them, but I just, I'd rather be at my theater. I'd rather f- be figuring some new problem out uh, on stage, uh, pushing the boundaries on some new piece that we're working on. It's like a self-perpetuating thing. It's like um, it's almost like like your ego is self-perpetuating when you go to these things. Mm-hmm. And how you are treated? Are you, what? What is your level of success? Um, how? And this it's a fool's game because unless you are in a movie that was out on Friday that made a, over a hundred million dollars, <laughs> you're a loser. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you know, <laughs> it, and there are subtle ways. That you realize too, and because it's a very non-linear achievement system, <clears throat> you might go, "Oh wow, they, the photographers put their camera down like after a second. I must mm. suck." You know, it's like you have all these different ways of because there's no real way to know if you're not focused on the work and you're focused on this all the stuff around the work. It's just kind of a crapshoot. It can be very disappointing and, yeah. and be reflected in whatever sort of weird baggage that you have. Yeah. It may not be true at all, but it, yeah. it also is uh, – it's a toxic business for people who are, vulner- who are autom- already vulnerable coming to the table. So yes. it seems like a strange – You better get used to rejection at any stage of your career. How do you prepare people in the group for that all those weird parts of the business that aren't about acting, or do you just focus on the acting? We just focus on the acting and the theater we're doing. We don't talk about show business. As a matter of fact, we had a, a we have a rule in our dressing rooms that we don't talk about showbiz. We mm-hmm. don't talk about auditions. We don't we just concentrate on the work we're doing. We really consider ourselves uh, a um, a theater company first and foremost. And we've been all around the world, and we know uh, what that. Uh, expectation is mm-hmm. for audiences uh, throughout the world when we've done theater. You know, we've done it in five continents now, and we uh, we've toured with uh, productions like 1984 and A Midsummer Night's Dream and a play I wrote called Harlequino Onto Freedom. And everywhere we go, there's a um, a reverence for theater that that uh, that um, 
is very serious. It's, it's, it's treated as an art form. Yeah. And uh, I don't know that we do that in the United States. And I don't know that we do that in Los Angeles. Um, we do. We, we, we are very serious about what we do. And part of that seriousness is um, a, uh, a levity. We, ha- we, we, we have to make sure that anytime we do something, that we look at it as entertainment and not as lecture and not as, as uh, something that, is, uh, that ever assumes that the actor is smarter than the audience. Right. That, that we, the humility involved in that is really super important. And never to take ourselves too seriously, even though we work in a serious, disciplined way, but not, never to take ourselves uh, without a grain of salt. We, we, have, we have a sense of humor about what we're doing. Yeah, because a lot of the early stuff that you did, I mean, I always when I first started seeing you, and it was probably maybe like maybe Howard the Duck. Or the sure thing or something. Mm-hmm. But I always just knew. But when I first saw him, I'm like, I like that guy. I like something about that guy. I think he's funny. He's fun. You're funny. And then you kind of... And then Tapeheads was a movie that I loved. <laughs> I loved that movie. You and Cusack. Yeah. Just the whole thing of like hijacking a Menudo concert. <laughs> this is fucking so crazy. Just to promote a band you like. I mean, it was so... And I was probably like 17 when that movie came out. Uh-huh. So I was the right age to be like, I want to be one of those guys. But it was only a couple years later that you're doing like very serious, heavy, really dramatic films that are getting insane amounts of critical acclaim. Yeah. Did that feel like it happened quickly, or because you had you know ten you know ten years of training under your belt by that point? Did it feel like that it it could that you thought it should have happened sooner, or what? What were your feelings? No, never, never felt it should have happened sooner. As I, I thought it happened right at the right time, and. Uh, it was, it was, you know, that kind of thing is very heady. That's a very, um, all of a sudden now you're getting offered lead roles in movies and it was something that, you know, it wasn't my, it wasn't my plan, but I was like, well, I'll get on this train. It's a great train, you know? And, and there was a lot of really, um, high quality stuff that was coming my way. So I really appreciated that. And the opportunity to work with Altman was a life changer. You know, he was someone I admired, um, from the first time I saw Nashville, I thought for the first time I understood what films could be and uh, became a film fan because of that movie. And did you feel like when you got, when you started working with him, was there any, how are you able to sort of push the fandom out of the way? Like push the, you know, you, I mean, there, it must've been slightly nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking, but the first time I met him, uh, uh, was up at his place up in Malibu and, and, uh, I got out of the car, went in, and you know I was nervous because I, it was for shortcuts. Actually, it was he was trying to put together shortcuts before he was starting to put together the player, and I didn't read this. I hadn't read the script, and there was no sides, and I don't know what this audition was. I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, and the agent was like, he, he just wants to talk to you, right? And I walk in, and they're having lunch. He says, hey, sit down. Uh, um, and then we ate lunch. We talked a little bit, and you know, and I told him about the actors' gang. He really was interested in the theater I was doing, and and then after lunch, he said, "Hey, you know, uh, you want to smoke a joint?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was like, uh, "Yeah, <laughs> uh, weird, but a hero, right?" Sure. <laughs> and then we just hung out for an hour or so after that, and I was like, "Wow, this guy's great," and, and he and he wants to engage with me you know he wasn't the thing about bob was that he was brilliant he knew all the answers but he never 
tried to come off as the auteur. Mm-hmm. He would ask. He would say, well, when you asked him a question about something, he, say, he would say, I, I'm not sure. What do you think? Right? Even though he knows the answer, right? It's, it's, it's uh, something that taught me a lot about directing, is that you don't have to be the top dog all the time. You can be humble and you can say, there are better people to answer this question. Right. And, and still retain your authority. I think a lot of people, when they're directing a film, are overcompensating, trying to assert their authority, trying to you know, say that you know, they must know the answer to everything. And so when I started the player with him, the first thing he did was he said, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to sit down in our office and we're going we're gonna to start rewriting, you and me. And I was like, wow, oh, okay. And so we started, we would just brainstorm for weeks, you know, trying to figure out better ways to tell the story. And it was an incredible um, gift to me to uh, feel real blessed that he, he did that because it really enabled me as a director of a film. It really uh, made me think I could do it. Uh, and my first directing job came right after uh, the player, uh, Bob Roberts, yeah. which I took the cinematographer from the player and his first AD and asked Bob, of course. Sure. Could. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and so they, they wound up, um, you know, helping me out on my film, too. That's incredible. That's I mean, yeah. I'm curious, to just be, now to know that you were that involved in the creative process, what, what do you think the player is about? Is it is just like a simple kind of noir murder mystery set in this kind of toxic Hollywood? Or is it, how do you view it? Uh, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good description. Um, all been after when we were at Cannes, it was all it was successful there, and I won an award, and Bob won an award, and he turned to me and he says, "You know what? I think we were too nice to, to Hollywood." <laughs> <laughs> but that's so crazy, right? It's like I think everyone everyone would acknowledge. I mean, I would I would be willing to bet that most of the people that watch the player wouldn't say like I want to be Griffin Mill or I want to be these they would go wow look at those people but then turn around and probably support the same system that keeps that in place yeah yeah but it's it definitely uh going from that and then doing your then directing you're directing yourself as the lead character so how is that what is the challenge behind that? Because that seems like, how are you getting out of your head to make sure that you are being you, the actor, and also you, the director? Well, first of all, I've been living with this story for about six years at this point, but trying to set it up. So I kind of knew. But then I, I was also, well, I, I have to play the part for financing, right? So I, I couldn't cast someone else. Right. And then it was a matter of just learning it, really, you know, and, and it was learning it in a different way than I usually do uh, when I'm an actor in a film. It was, it was I don't have, I'm not going to have time to memorize it every day. So I just have to memorize it before we start. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had a, uh, and, and then I, I also, I, I said I'm going to give myself only three or four takes each time, right? And um, it has to be that way or else we're, we're going to go over budget and over schedule so it was just about discipline and and having a good cinematographer that you trust and i think it did playback on only a couple of the shots just like the more complicated shot oh wow but we didn't do playback uh, that, that's a death knell for a set it's when actors start looking at themselves all oh and they just get in their heads yeah, yeah. 
Oh, I don't. I look weird. Oh, I can't. Can I do it again? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> can I do it again? <laughs> one more. Can we do it one more time? No, we got to move no, on. No, no, no. But wait, wait, wait. Yeah. No. Well, you know, we could, but yeah, yeah. Uh, we're losing light. Yeah. It's like 10 a.m. But eventually, we'll lose. We'll the light. edit around it. Yeah. Yeah. Let me do it again. I walked. You're here. fantastic, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, it was really good. Well, yeah, that's. I think that's all most people want to hear. I think uh, hear. the first uh, fifty takes were good. <laughs> I think there might be something yeah. in there we can stitch I together. Go back and I think. Find something. What do you think a director's job is? Because everyone has a slightly different take on what they think a director's supposed to do. The uh, general. The general. Yeah. The, Just sort of gives everyone their marching orders. Well, uh, you have to also have to inspire the troops to go up the hill too. You know, yeah, you have to you have to be uh, sensitive to the to. Your, what your crew is going through too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so let's see. So that would have been around 92, right? 92, Bob Roberts, mm-hmm. 92, 93. And then Shawshank's 94, mm-hmm. I think. And that, when you're making a movie like that, you obviously you're probably not as, a, you're not so hyper aware of what's going on. But it's just one of those, that movie's on television all the time. And it's a movie that if it's on, I'll just, Watch wherever it is in the story. You're not alone. Yeah. What is it about? What, what do you think it is about that story that is so timeless and doesn't and has is still something that people talk about? I think it's about hope, about offering hope, and about this idea that we can all be and we all are enslaved in some way, uh, uh, imprisoned in some way. Uh, we're doing it to ourselves most of the time, uh, whether it's a uh, relationship that's going nowhere or a uh, bad job that you don't like, you know. Um, and I, I guess it's that if you understand that everyone's trapped to a certain degree, the movie offers the possibility that there's a place in the sun for you somewhere, you know. There's a place that if with some per- perseverance and patience and a little luck, you can get there. Yeah. And that's where, that, uh, that's where Morgan Freeman really began honing his narration skills. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to ultimately be the voice. Yeah. It's like, oh, I need that guy to narrate everything. Everything. I just need that buttery voice. Yeah. You're saying, mm, nah. I just yeah. need that. <laughs> I just need that in my life. But it, kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, not getting taken a hold of by this balance between becoming successful in a way where it might be dangerous and toxic to your ego and still staying grounded. Are you still staying pretty grounded at this point? Well, look, first let me say that I, I, uh, it's a, it is a big, cha- it was a big challenge. And it's, it's, a, it's when everybody wants you, when, when you're getting 10, 12, 20 scripts and, you know, when that whole change in your life happens uh you you, your battle at least my battle to stay grounded was rooted in the theater but i also know that there i'm sure there were instances where i wasn't so grounded and might have said or done things or acted in a way that was indicative of that kind of bullshit Mm mm-hmm and uh, to anybody out there, I apologize <laughs> <laughs> that was affected by that. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it, it, you know, I, I was having a conversation with someone about three months ago, and, the, and it was a producer, and, and we were just joking around. He says, yeah, you, yeah, you turned me down on, on something. I said, now what? 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 And so, so there are sections 
of my life where I don't even know what happened. Sure. Right? Because things got so busy and so crazy. So I might have received this script. I might have gotten an offer for it, but I might have also not had time to read it or maybe I was already doing something in that time frame or whatever. So you understand every time that happens, someone gets offended by it. Of course. Right? The person that's written that script or the person who wanted you in their film and they think, well, fuck you, you know, you didn't want to do my film, right? So (laughs) all of that said, I feel like the thing that's that I've been successful at is is being able to understand the the power of saying no, and the, the importance of saying no, to um, to uh, things that seem like obligatory, uh, seem like repetitions of mm-hmm. things I've already done. Um, I've turned down a lot of uh, scripts recently because I I just it, now it's like for me it's like, is it worth it in life to do this? It's not whether it's worth it for a career or whether uh, I need money or whatever, any of that. It's, it's time's too short. Yeah. Life's too short to be dancing with this kind of thing for three months. Right. I, 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 there's other creative things that I know I can do and I am doing that I would prefer to be doing. Yeah, and I don't have the desire as an actor just to simply be on a set. I, and, and I think a lot of people do. I think that I was thinking about this recently. Why people that I know that are successful, that have a lot of money, um, are doing mediocre things, and I, 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 either they don't know it's mediocre, or maybe they just. That's their life. That's what they do. They're just they, like going to a set, getting up. They need to, to do that. That's, that's how they feel good. Yeah. And uh, maybe it's, you know, that it's the place where, you know, you come and someone comes up to you and says, what can I get you? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then for certain people, it's being in that makeup trailer for an hour. Right. And being, you know, just taken care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. But for me, I, I'm not a big fan of being on a set, I, I, unless it's something I really, really want to do, and sure. something that's really I'm invested with emotionally, and and, um, and and the story I feel is necessary story to be told. Yeah, I mean, I tend to <clears throat> the people that I tend to fan worship on the most are the people where it just feels like you're just doing stuff because you're excited about it or you're passionate about it. Maybe you won't do something for a couple of years, and you do something really cool or you just, you know, it's like I always love that Will Ferrell just did these weird, this weird beer commercial in the Midwest, just because he fucking wanted to. Like right. there was no other. I those kinds of choices seem to always be the best choices, rather than oh, I have to take this type of movie to try to do this, or then I gotta do that, and yeah. I'll do if I do this one, then I guess I gotta do that one, and then it just seems one like, for me, one for them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, one for yeah. me, one. And for then them. it becomes like. 20 for them. <laughs> Zero for and me. And when am I going to do my thing, right? <laughs> but this is why, you know, here and now is, I, is one of those things. I read that script and I was like, wow, that's, that's talking about right now. That's talking about what's happening now in our culture. Yeah. And it's taking, doing it from a personal point of view with a family. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was, and Alan Ball's genius, so I thought, well, that's a no-brainer, you know, that... This guy's going to produce something interesting. I know that. Yeah, he's really great at. I feel like his one of his many superpowers is 
showing a complete group of people all in individual crisis. Mm-hmm. That it's there. That it's. I mean, going back to Six Feet Under, and mm-hmm. you know, it's like all these characters are sort of rich with their own crisis, and then what happens when you? Put them all like in a bag and shake them together. Like just watching all these this crisis like bang together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that uh, ah, see? I want to ask questions about where, but you can't answer those questions. But what was what was it specifically that excited you about the about the show? Well, um, first of all, playing someone that's coming apart. <laughs> Are you you ready? You were ready for that. Yeah. You're ready to play the. the I think it, start, it starts around my age and it ends up with King Lear. Yeah, gotcha. You know, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So eventually, you get to the King Lear, where you're an old doddering man getting naked and yelling at the storm that's approaching. You know, um, you could always be a crazy character on Game of Thrones. <laughs> release the power. You know, like you could be a release the something guy. That's a fun. That's a fun crazy old person. Are to there get any to. animals besides the kraken that? Get released like that? Hounds get hounds released. And krakens? Yeah, hounds and krakens, pretty much. Release the krakens. Yeah, all the krakens. <laughs> How many krakens we got? Release yeah, the wildebeests. Let them go. <laughs> let them go. Now we're getting into Python. You work with Terry Jones, too, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You must have been a Python fan. I was, oh my God, so, so huge of a fan. That was like such a great opportunity to work with him. Just to, just to be around him, John Cleese. You know, um, it was so fun. Do you bombard them with questions, or are you do you like? No, no, people? I was worried about other things. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it's just uh, here and now. It's, uh, it's it, there's something about it that I think is uh, necessary right now to open up this dialogue about what it is to be a person of color in this country. With this new invective, this new hatred, this new um, supremacy that's being encouraged, uh, it's just taking us backwards in a terrible way, and and uh, and not to mention all the other things. But just in, in as far as here and now goes, uh, these are human beings that are um, being unfairly um, targeted for the most broad insensitive reasons and and i think the here and now talks about that and talks about where we are right now but also where my generation is and and what what we feel our failures are sure but i also like this storyline particularly with holly hunter's character where it's like She's trying so hard that it's not helpful. That's almost like <laughs> destructive. But she's just trying so hard. And it's like she just wants to control the experience. But, she, but it's like in her heart is in the right place. But her methods are sort of just like hug you too hard mm-hmm. kind of thing. I think that's an interesting commentary as well of about, you know, control and trying to control the experience and, you know, like, and, and what's helpful and what's not helpful, even right. though you think you're the most, you know, like, flower-loving, like, everyone should all be happy, you know, like... Well, there's that talk about, you know, it's the millennials, uh, the, that generation, and, and it was, um, it was post-hippie, right? Right. Between, and so, but it was also with this, a lot of the same values... But there's, you know, a lot of uh, people I've talked to in, in, like, people that hire people uh, find a a challenge in that because uh, this is a generation that has been maybe maybe overly uh, nurtured Mm -hmm. to the idea idea that, you know, if 
is every single one of your art projects from kindergarten and first grade framed, right? <laughs> so this might be an ind- indication of, of, of maybe being over-nurtured, right? Yeah. yeah so, so that you're a genius no matter what you do, right? right? And I, I think the, 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 it's important to be self-critical and to be able to understand that you're not all that, right? right. That you, that not all that at 22, Right. You know, you have to figure out a way to be to be able to receive your boss's suggestions or, you know, various things yeah. from the society that are. I remember are, feeling really stupid at twenty two. Like I didn't. I don't remember. I remember feeling like, oh my god, I don't know anything. Everyone yeah. knows stuff, and I don't know stuff. I was scared all the time. Yeah, so was I. Me too. I was terrified. Yeah, but I also. You know, I, I think I made some comment on another podcast where I sort of went after millennials for like being a particip- participation trophy culture. Before we get too down uh, on millennials, technically I'm a millennial. I know, so. I know, and, uh, and, all and as did a you get did you get bad feedback? Someone for that? said something that I couldn't d- dispute. Here's she, the deal: millennials she, are going to save this world. Yes, right? this is this is the deal. It's it's not going to be easy. And we left you a huge mess. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, that was part of what this person yeah. said, was she said, well, it's not our fault that we were given participation trophies. Our parents did that. And I was like, it, uh, that's yeah, true. You're right. That's true. And you, that's, were, you were conditioned. That's what you're talking about with the Holly Hunter character in, yes. in, in here and now, is, yes. is, is that. And, and they're, they're absolutely right. That you were, you were conditioned. And then I think about, I don't, I mean, I don't have kids yet, but... But then I think, like, well, when I have kids, of course I'm going to want them to feel good all the time. Of course I'm going to want them to feel happy. I'm not going to want them to be hurt. Yeah. So, you know, I totally envision myself as like, oh, come on, that was perfect, you know? Yeah. Here's the deal. that the, My parents, you know, would just go out. If you have a key, you know, we'll throw them, we'll just throw them, but go out, right? And so we're like... Oh, remember not to die. Okay, we'll right, see you later. New York City, seven oh. years old, taking the subway. Okay? Oh, so, yeah, fantastic. So, right? So it's, it's, it's different survival skills for different times yeah. whatever but uh, my parents uh, were basically go out you know you, you have a key come back by dinner right and so we were we had free reign I was on the subway when I was uh, seven years old right so uh, I would go play until sun, sundown so that was not particularly overly nurtured right <laughs> right but here's the deal regardless of whether you're overly nurtured or under nurtured at some point, I know this is apparent. At some point, your p- kids are going to tell you you fucked it up. Sure. <laughs> no matter what, yeah, it's just gonna. Yeah. At some point, there's going to be a conversation, and and you know what? They're right because none of us is perfect. But right? they have and to tell you that. We try our best. We try our best. We, we 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 think we're doing a good job, but then their perspective is, yeah, you didn't do that good of a job, right. In that particular instance, yeah. and. <laughs> And then you go, yeah, that's you're right. That is fucked up, and it's. I think it's a matter of being open enough to admitting that you might have been wrong as a parent. Sure. Uh, in order to continue a, a relationship with your with your children. Yeah, but I think at a certain point, like you, you, the younger people have to kind of. That I think that's part of the rebellion process, and the rebellion process is important because they kind of have to raise the structures to seed their own stuff. 
and they have to be capable entities in that way. So it is, you know, it's necessary for a certain amount of like, I got to knock all this down so I can build, build my own thing. Mm -hmm. And I have my own perspective and you had yours because of the time that you came up in. And now, now things are different. Like I, I hate, I feel bad because for so long I sort of just have capped on millennials. Ah, you know, but when I think about it, I'm like, ah, you know what though? A lot of you are really doing the best with what you got. You know, it's like, this is the situation that you got and it's not a great, there are some things that are amazing compared to when we were growing up and some things that are – I don't know how I would have dealt as a teenager with social media and being so vulnerable and scared and terrified and then just letting random people I don't know bully the shit out of me and feel social pressures because I don't look a certain way and just seeing that all day long. I don't know how a young brain processes that much yeah, toxicity. It's, difficult. It's, a new, it's a new and brand new challenge. Uh, but there, but the, here's the plus about the millennials. Now, my kids are uh, 28 and 25 and 32, right? And so uh, they are the – this generation – and I remember the Iraq war when it was about to start. Um, the only opposition that came as the drumbeats of war were happening uh, from across the media, NBC, CBS, uh, ABC, CNN, Fox, everybody – was was basically advocating for this war, using the propaganda that was given to them by the Bush administration and putting that story out there. Online, you could see the other story. Online, you could read The Guardian from the UK or The Independent from the UK and the reporting that there was happening throughout the world. And you can understand that, oh, wait a second, this is being cooked. There's, this, is, this intelligence is being cooked and, and this is bullshit. If the media, if the, if the media didn't exist on the internet at that point, it would have been a slam dunk for them. But this created the first resistance mm-hmm. on the internet, right? Which resulted in a march uh, about four weeks before the war started, in over five hundred cities across the world, millions and millions of people coming out against a war that had not started yet. That is the internet. And that is what these millennials have been exposed to. Right. So when you cut fast forward to Obama being elected, it's from, from that start. And then when you fast forward to just recently with this election, you come to understand that their inability to, to, to grab hold of the Hillary Clinton thing has everything to do with their betrayal from the last 20 years. If, if when you're... Uh, 10 years old or 8 years old, you're still aware that they're cooking up this, this fiction. Mm-hmm. So you, don't, you no longer trust the media, right? Right. As, as you just don't trust it anymore. Because as a child, you were lied to. You know you were lied to. And this is coming after surviving whatever traumatic experience you might have experienced from 9-11. Right. So it's, it's like, mm, daddy lied to me, Right. And now I don't know. I don't trust them anymore, right? So now they're making their decisions based on their own information, based on where they find it, right? That can be very dangerous, but it can also be the last shred of independent thought and freedom that we can have, right? And now everyone and everyone has a voice, which is fantastic. Right. But but even and on even just besides politics, I feel like younger people. You know, it's sort of like with the rise of YouTube videos and social media videos, 
anything that looks too produced, they people immediately don't trust. I don't know. You're trying to sell me something, right. you know. So like the idea that so many things got made. That you go, where if you worked in traditional media, you go, oh, I look shitty. It's just a guy in a bedroom. They're like, yeah, but it's honest. You know, it's authentic. Mm-hmm. Like, like that, you know, that, I mean, obviously that's all been monetized now and it's all like, you know, like you can copy that model. But, yeah. but it, it, it is interesting to just hear what you say and realize like, well, that kind of happened across all sectors, not just politics, but also entertainment mm-hmm. of people sort of feeling like, I just I just need some voice that feels authentic to me and is not some big company trying to trying to sell me something. I think that's why Bernie resonated with the young people. So he was saying things that were on their minds mm-hmm. and that, that he was addressing things that politicians don't usually address. Right. And so I, I think I believe this this generation is way way more progressive than mine was. Right. 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 And I think that's something to have hope for. Yeah, because now you really do see what the effects are. I mean, you really can see people who uh, uh, are in trouble. You can actually see it. And it's sort of like when the Vietnam War was televised, and for the first time, people were like, oh, oh, wait, war is bad. bad. War is de- is bloody and deadly. You know, Now mm. we're seeing an even more granular, minute-by-minute <laughs> minute play of everything that's happening in but, the world. But the way people are taking in the information where it's on a, you know, it's on a Facebook page or a Twitter page where it's just, you're seeing, you know, it's like, hey, there's still slavery happening in Africa. And then, hey, here's a cute video of a dog. Hey, like, look, like my kid uh, just did this thing. Hey, there, you know, it's like, it's hard to let anything sink in or process when you can just flick your thumb and almost move past something that does deserve your attention more than other things. Sure. I think that can be kind of a dangerous way of, like, it's like the way people take in information is, is like a bit too... It's you know, true. Flippant. It's and true, and it's unfortunate. But you know, it, it might be the last place we're going to hear about anything that's happening in certain places of the world because CNN doesn't do it. They're just twenty four seven on the you know what they're on, right? Yeah, right. But they don't talk about the world. NPR does to some degree, but you know, there's not a lot of news agencies that are talking about Yemen, for example, and what's what yeah. we've been doing over there. This is still the the. Uh, the blackout that happens. Yeah. At least you can get, like, like you know, if you have uh, cable, you know, you can access the BBC World News, which it usually does a pretty mm-hmm. good job of kind of, you know, a the little world, bit more. Yeah. 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 Why don't we do that? I don't know. Because we're Americans and we're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it happening? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm interested in kind of exploring something you were talking about before. Is how do you know what the difference is between believing in what you're doing, believing whatever you're, you know, whether whether you, it's a political message or, or or a choice, an acting choice? How are you to not get swept up by your ego, but still believe in what you're saying and what you're doing? You know, because I I, I kind of feel like. I get worried sometimes, like, oh, if I really believe too much in what I'm doing, then I'm going to get caught up in my ego, and then I'm, I'm going to miss things that are important. But I still feel like you, it's important to be confident in what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. Does that question make any sense? Yeah, no, I, I, it's just about arrogance, right? Isn't it? Yeah, so what's the difference between arrogance and believing in yourself? Like, the positive believing in yourself, and then where it gets kind of negative and arrogant and ego-driven. Because it, be, it seems like it can be difficult to navigate those two things. Uh, I don't find that difficult. I think arrogance comes from lack of listening, Right, it's where you stop listening to people. It's where you think you're the expert and and that everyone should listen to you. Right, that's boring. 
You know, th- those kinds of people are just terrible at parties. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly when they take cocaine, then, then it's even worse. Then they just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. The worst drug in the world, by the way. Oh, yeah. I've never done it. I, I've, you've done it, right? Yeah, it's great. What? <laughs> I feel it's like terrible. there's a... I've heard there's like a weird resurgence of it now. Yeah, there's always this someone stupid yeah. doing it. But, um, but, here, but here's the deal. It's, it's, uh, humility is an important part of being a, an actor, of doing art. You know, any artist without humility is is just going to be doing the same thing over and over again. And uh, humility allows you to be open to a new idea. Um, humility allows you to recognize that the people that you're working with are as are equal to you, and deserve respect and deserve your attention and your focus. Um, we have a a, uh, a rule at the Actors Gang of um, Two rules in, in particular. One is that when someone else is talking, give them the focus. Um, and more importantly, uh, everyone is safe on the stage. Uh, no one presumes uh, that another actor should be doing anything other than what they're doing. So uh, it manifests uh, in a safety issue, really. is like don't use the other actor. Don't grab the other actor. No touching, in, in essence, without the other person's knowledge and uh, acceptance of the touch. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes people, actors, get in this like cocoons of like uh, of self. Um, I need to take care of myself. I need to take care of what I need in this scene. I, I, I need this and I need this and I, I want everyone to call me by my character name and I don't want anyone to make eye contact with me and I, I, I need to act like this in order for myself. And you know, I guess that works for some people, but it doesn't make it easier for the other people they're working with. So how do you create an environment where you know what you're doing, but you're also in part of what knowing what you're doing is, is being able to be generous and being able to be positive with the people you're working with. Yeah, that's, that and is a perfect answer. And in conversation, but also in eye contact. And, and <clears throat> when you're off camera, be better than you were on camera. Because ultimately, you're just talking about you're just talking about contributing to the. You're talking about forming a relationship and a chemistry and and contributing rather than making it all about yourself, right? Which I would imagine can be tricky sometimes, especially if you're the number one name on the call sheet. No, it's that's where it's most important that you do that. Yeah, because you're already number one on the call sheet. I mean, what, what more do you? Think? <laughs> Constant a daily, daily reminder that you're the you know poobah of the. Yeah. Will you just text me every day and tell me I'm amazing? Is that okay? Will you just text me every, just every day? Everyone is capable of really... Everyone's capable of failure, right? You know, And, and even the one that's number one on the call, call sheet. And so I think it's just better work situation to go in and with humility and how can I be helped, but also how can I help? Did you have to form a relationship with your representatives? Like, look, this is how I do things. Don't throw crappy things at me don't you know i mean because a lot of that part of the business is very much about you know 
it's very money driven and it's a challenge because if you tell them too much they might just stop working for you sure of course <laughs> right yeah <laughs> oh i thought you didn't want to work no i wasn't saying i didn't want to work yeah. I, just, I just want to work why on... can't you read my mind <laughs> <laughs> can't you just empathically absorb my feelings well, I, I didn't say i didn't want any scripts i don't want the <laughs> shitty ones <laughs> i don't understand so no scripts no please but that's why because you you have such a great eye for what's special about a project. And I always wondered about working with the Coen brothers, especially on a film like Hudsucker, where I would imagine on set, all the cho- a lot of the choices probably seem very... If you're seeing it live without their, with what, what they're seeing, does it feel like, is this working? Is this strange? Because when you see it cut together, of course, it's flawless. Mm-hmm. But at the time, does it feel like, okay, I'm going to trust you guys that this is going to work? Well, actually, I auditioned for that part. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah, I did. I was past auditioning at that point, but I, the Coen brothers were like really specific about what they wanted, right? And so uh, we had a lot of discussions about it beforehand, about the style that we were working in, and watched a lot of, you know, 30s screwball comedies. Yeah. And yeah. That fast paced dialogue and mm-hmm. that, you know, innocent, there's a certain innocence to the character, naivete. Uh, which is like a lot of those characters in the genre. And so um, it was really about, uh, you know, just bringing that every day, that discipline every day. And they, they were very, uh, they were really fun to work with because they, they're very clear about what they want, you know. It was never they were ambiguous. Yeah, yeah, their style does not seem at all like there's no. any ambiguity. They have to know exact. I mean, that is... To hold that their type of storytelling together feels like they really kind of better know exactly what they're doing, or yeah. it's not gonna, it's not gonna work. Yeah. Uh, and when you saw the movie, were you like, "Yeah, this is exactly what I thought we were making"? Uh, yeah, just yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I loved it. What, what they did with it, they just didn't know how to put it out. That's the problem. Yeah. They, they, no one knew what a hud sucker was. <laughs> <laughs> Let alone what a proxy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Two that. difficult words. Like mm-hmm. we understand the. <laughs> and just you holding a circle. Yeah. But that's what's sort of that's what's sort of fun about it. Is like that was within the story of that movie. It all makes perfect sense. I think it's a great movie. I love I, that I, movie. I think it's one of their best. Actually, not a lot of people know that, but I yeah. think it is. Yeah. It's certainly one of their most hopeful movies. It really yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Especially lately. <laughs> yeah, they, they had a little bit of a hopeful, but Raising Arizona was kind of hopeful in the end. It's like, yeah. they had a couple, and then it just went back to like, blah, blah, yeah. death, destruction. Well, uh, I this has been so amazing to have you come to my house and chat. I mean, I, I really, uh, are you directing any Actors Gang stuff anytime soon? Yeah. What are you, what are you directing? Um, we're opening it up uh, in two weeks. Uh, but when does this air? This will go up in a week. Ah, okay. So we're opening up this week. Fantastic. Uh, it's called The New Colossus. It's uh, based on a, a workshop we did called The Refugee Workshop. Um, about two years ago, we uh, were looking at the rhetoric that was happening regarding immigration and refugees and the demonization of people that are, you know, have lost everything, which is so cruel. And we started thinking about it, as a company, how can we tell a story about this? We don't have any Syrians in the company, but we do have people from all over the world. And so I asked everyone to um, find their origin story, find out 
who in their family uh, left oppression towards freedom. And so everyone is pretty much playing their relatives. Oh, wow. Uh, That's incredible. Yeah. And so uh, whether it was relatives that came in the 17th century or whether it's people that came last year, uh, it's uh, 12 different languages spoken uh, from 12 different periods of time. Uh, and somehow all of these refugees meet at a place waiting for a boat. And, uh, and they, you hear some, some of their story in English, but a, a lot of the play is in, in languages uh, that you might not understand. But it still works em- emotionally. You still understand, in a way, what's happening. And uh, at the end of the, the play, we remind uh, the audience of the words on the Statue of Liberty, written by Emma Lazarus, called The New Colossus. And that, that's the name of the... That's fantastic. That's cool. I mean, if you... It, you know, that to me is really using what you do, you know, to, to, to get ideas across for things that you believe in. That seems like... Eh, like, what's a purer form of art than that? I'm telling you, we had, during our re- re- workshop production... And we're going to do this in the production that we're opening up uh, February 11th, is that at the end of the performance, we ask the audience if there are any refugees in the audience. And if not, we ask, and if there are, we we ask them to tell their story. To get up and tell their story? Yeah, if they're comfortable telling their story. Sure. Tell their story. Then we ask sons and daughters of refugees, or grandsons, granddaughters of refugees, great-grandsons, great-granddaughters of refugees. One night we had, and then I will ask where from, right? Mm -hmm. One night we had pretty much the entire world in our little house in in Culver City, 99-seat house, from almost everywhere in the world, other than Antarctica. No one's really a refugee from Antarctica. <laughs> Soon but seriously, we had people from... Those penguins marched far Several countries yards. in the Far East, several European countries, several, uh, a, a couple African countries, uh, a few South American countries. And it, uh, you realize, this is us. This is who we are as a country. This, this audience right here from 99 different places is what the United States is. Mm-hmm. That is what defines us. This makes me think that you should just come over weekly and hang out, and uh, then just we'll just we'll just hang and talk about stuff, and sure. you could you, you give us keep us informed, keep us informed. It's on such stuff. a long drive for. Her. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I know. I know the area of town that you live in, and I was like, "Fuck, that's a long way." Because yeah. whenever people ask me to go that far west, I always try to find reasons. Like, ah, uh, can we just like meet? Like around Century City, it's like kind of midway. Yeah. I once you know. met a girl that lived on that side of town, and like I was like, "Where do you live?" And she said that town, and I was I was like, "I, I can't do a long distance." Ride. <laughs> <laughs> it is long distance. Can't do it. Yeah, it is. No, that's too much. It yeah. is long too distance. Trying. Yeah, just, <laughs> yeah. You could fly yeah. to San Francisco faster than you could drive west of the four hundred five from <laughs> from Venice to the Griffith Park. Uh, uh, yeah. to, to the to the Greek here. Yeah, that's a you know on a Friday or a Saturday. Oh, oh it's like oh, an hour and a half. Oh, it's like. Yeah. So I said to my son we were going to go see a concert. I said, well, imagine we're driving to Connecticut. <laughs> you should just get a fucking room at that where the 101 coffee shop is, that, that hotel. Western, yeah. Just like right at Franklin on the one, we'll just get a room. <laughs> it's just because there's no, it's just not fun to get across town. Yeah. So here, uh, 
Actors Gang, people can go. Is it just is it theactorsgang.com or actorsgang.com? It's theactorsgang.com. Theactorsgang.com. WWW, etc. And then uh, what is the premiere date for here and now? February. Katie will have that. Katie, what is that? Leah. Uh, February 11th, 9 p.m., probably 8 central. Yeah, and uh, okay. Yeah, whatever you want. Say whatever you want. Yeah, so uh, New Colossus starts on the 8th. In preview, eighth, ninth, tenth, Thursday through through Thursday through Saturdays at eight p.m. Fantastic at the Actors Gang Theater, ninety seventy Venice Boulevard. Got it in Culver City. In fancy Culver City and now. Thursdays, by the way, is pay what you can. Always has been pay what you can. If you're broke and you want to see some theater, come on down. We'll take care of you. Oh, that's great. I wish I knew that. I used to live on El Centro, right near the old theater on Santa Monica. And I was just like, oh, I wish I had money to go see shows there. And then uh, after I had moved, or you guys had moved, someone told me about the Thursday. I was like, yeah. well, well, fuck. <laughs> well, God now you know. We have a, always had that kind of policy because we don't believe that theater should be just for people that are wealthy. It's, it's essential that it be about what the community wants. So. Fantastic. And then, of course, uh, you'll be reprising your role as uh, young George Kennedy in Nazi Germany uh, <laughs> on a very special episode of The Love Boat, yeah. which now I have to look up because I'm fascinated. Uh, I, was, I was brilliant. I would imagine. <laughs> I was brilliant on The Love Boat. I would... <laughs> did you do a George Kennedy impression or did you just uh, assume how he was? And uh, No, he was there. I could actually study him. Oh, nice. Yeah. He was with Cloris Leachman. So oh, it was like their really flashback right. from their relationship. I can't believe how much we're talking about the love, though. <laughs> Did you <laughs> just... Can I talk about Herbie Villages? Yes, of course. Was he on that episode? He was on. He was in Tape Heads. Don't you remember? Oh, my God. That's yeah, right. Yeah, Please talk about Herbie was, Villages. Uh, no, just uh, it was the greatest movie because there were all these people coming in doing these one days from Don Cornelius yep. to Herbie Villages. Weird Al. To uh, Weird Al Yankovic to... Uh, Jello Biafra yep. from Dead Kennedys. Yep. Uh, to right. uh, who else? I don't know. There's so many weird, fucking great people. Devo was in there. Wasn't it yeah. Sam and Dave? Um, Sam and no, yeah, no. Uh, who who was the who were the swanky modes? Sam, Sam Moore. Yeah. And uh, Junior Walker. Junior Walker. Got it. They got were it, from two separate two groups. separate groups. Then they were the swanky modes. They were the swanky. This is the fucking best band name. Yeah. Ever. Yeah, I have a poster still. Oh, nice. come on. That's Swanky right. Modes live. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That movie's been... T- I've been hearing people talk about that a lot lately. So it might be like this, like, you know, synergy or... People should go Side back and watch it. thing. Come on, Tape Heads. Tape Heads, yeah. Robbins, Cusack, <laughs> an unstoppable duo. Yeah. Oh, and, and just and, and this is just me gushing you a little bit. I fucking, uh, it, the High Fidelity, the Ian character in High Fidelity is fucking great. Yeah, yeah. that was fun to do. Was that based off of guys in Venice? Because when I, I used to work at a record store in Venice, and those world music the guys. The world music guys. In, John in. asked me to do this cameo, and I said, I will do it if you give me a wig that I get to keep. <laughs> And it's and I basically want to base my character on Steven Seagal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad I had brought that up. Ah, uh, shit. Oh, but a super, perfect. super new agey sensitive Steven Seagal. Yeah. <laughs> That's who I want to play. That's the best piece of and information I've heard in a very long time. <laughs> Thanks, Tim Robbins. Good my to see you, My pleasure. Man. Thank you. Enjoy your burrito, everyone. ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. 
It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like sure. to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker lied like a liar like a liar and if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal or you love to hop in the way back machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes you should tune in to our podcast morbid follow morbid on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen to episodes early and ad free by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts